Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey everybody, how's it going? Your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, August 3rd is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. Every now and again, what kind of pot to smoke, how to smoke it, maybe eat it, drink it, whatever. They talk about it. Chicago Reader and also columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A. V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Wednesday, August 3rd, and this is The Ben Jaromsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Raider columnist, Ben Jaromsky. Yeah, hello everybody, Ben Jaromsky here. We're calling this DB the Wuss <laughs> Wednesday, and here's why. Next, I... Thought you, you guys probably figured I'd be talking Kansas, Kansas, Kansas. We'll get into Kansas because that news out of Kansas is pretty big. Man, total whoop booty in Kansas. That's like a really deep reference that maybe Monroe will get no one else. Anyway, neither here nor there. I just got to talk about DB. I think we've all seen uh, Wizard of Oz. Oh, <laughs> pretty popular. I take nothing for granted. Yeah, I know. I mean, you cannot take anything for granted, okay, D? <laughs> Sorry. If it took place before 2016, cannot take it for granted that people will know what it is. I wasn't born yet. <laughs> I've heard of the Civil War, okay? I wasn't born that either. Anyway, well, I just have there, to say there, there were flying monkeys last night. <laughs> yes, there were flying monkeys. We'll get into that. I just have to say this before we get into Kansas and Trump and all the news of the day. And also our second guest, Tommy Brune, Tom Brune. Uh, oh, my goodness. Monroe and I are going to have a field day with him. Uh, we'll be talking about um, stuff that went down in the 60s. And she goes, oh, that'll blow the mind of millennials. Woo, the 60s. Richard J. Daly, different mayor. Uh, but uh, you're under you're under the effects of policies he enacted back then, ladies and gentlemen, even if you don't know it. All right. DB, Darren Bailey, uh, is the Republican candidate for governor. We're running against J.B. Pritzker uh, in November. I take nothing for granted. I assume my audience is listening for the first time, and they're not aware of that. All right? He is the maggiest MAGA man in the state of Illinois. I'm proud of it. I'm MAGA. Uh, uh, uh. He's hey, so friends, MAGA. are you ready he for ran. government to dictate and control your lives again? You're one step closer. J.B. Pritzker, our tyrannical governor. Oh, he sounds kind of nice. That's DB Darren Bailey. So he ran. He ran to get Trump's endorsement in June. Remember that Trump came to Illinois, had a rally downstate, and he endorsed Mary Miller, the same Mary Miller who said Hillary was right, uh, endorsed DB Darren Bailey. Darren Bailey was so happy he jumped for joy. So he was victorious because, you know, MAGA does whatever Trump tells him. Trump said, vote for DB. And they go, yes, sir. 
Though it's curious what happened in Missouri yesterday with the Eric endorsement. We'll get into that with Monroe. Uh, and uh, so, uh, anyway, subsequently, people are coming face to face with the reality that this guy is nuts. I don't know how else to put it. He says things that are completely inappropriate. Uh, so, for instance, uh, there was the comments he made the day of July 4th, 4th of July. There was a shooting in Highland Park. You all know what happened. And uh, a gunman went up on a roof and just started shooting at a 4th of July parade. I think seven people have been killed. Right In the immediate aftermath, before the gunman had been apprehended, a DB, Darren Bailey, uh, trying to minimize it, because he was afraid that it might lead to what we need, which is some sort of sane gun laws restricting the access of his weaponry that people are being used to kill people from coast to coast. He said, don't worry about it. It's a horrible thing. Pray for the victims. And they go back to celebrating. Oops. Shows absolutely what? No empathy, no sympathy, no semblance of being a human being at all. In the face of this tragedy, and then yesterday, uh, it was reported, it came out, that he had made comments saying that abortion is worse than what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust. Said it. You can go watch it. Again, absolutely showing nothing resembling empathy. And this, by the way, is a common theme among MAGA people. Monroe remembers this. After the, um, the racist uh, in Buffalo went into that grocery store, uh, and uh, shot 10 people in the store. I think all 10 of them were black. But he picked a store in a black neighborhood because he was clearly targeting black people. After that broke, there was the woman in Florida, we talked about it, who tweeted out, well, they still got a long way to go before uh, they catch up with Planned Parenthood or whatever and all the abortions. Like, in their mind, somehow or other, killing a live human being who's walking down the street or as a citizen of Germany, or Austria, or Poland, or wherever the Nazis invaded and slaughtered the Jews, somehow or other, that is not as significant as an abortion. That, my friends, is a form of insanity. And if we call it anything else, we're kind of complicit in it. So he got called out, as well he should. And at first, he kind of like danced around, oh, I didn't mean to say anything bad about the Holocaust, you know. Just like he danced around. Oh, I didn't mean to sound offensive about people who were slaughtered in Highland Park. Now, he's probably under siege, Monroe, from MAGA. He's backing off. I just read this in Rich Miller. Thank you, Frank, for sending it to me. He's backing off. He goes, my comments were taken out of context. How the heck? I'm cleaning up my language because I think this show may be the one that Dennis drops a lump in. How the heck? So, Monroe... Just reminding you, don't swear. How the heck can you say your comments were taken out of context when they are your comments, when they are your worldview? You freaking said them. The comments about the Holocaust were said in a Facebook message that you gave to your supporters. Nobody was asking you questions. Nobody threw a trick question at you that you stumbled on. They're there for anybody to see. Similarly, your 4th of July comments were part of a prepared statement that you you read. Nobody took it out of context. You said it. And now you're chicken. You're afraid of MAGA's reaction. You're afraid that MAGA's like thinking, oh, he's backing off. 
Like MAGA thinks they can never do anything wrong. They should never apologize for anything they do. Whatever they say is golden. And so if you dare to say, you know, this MAGA stuff we believe in is offensive and maybe we should reconsider it, you're viewed like as a rhino. And they drive you out of the cult. And so to get back into the cult, he's now going around saying, oh, it's taken out of context. What a wuss. Listen, man, if you don't think, if you don't agree with the things you said, then say that. But if you do agree with the things you say, then own them. So people can see just how insane MAGA is. All right, I had to get that off my chest, Monroe. When I talked to you this morning, I had not seen the backtrack, okay? (laughs) I had not seen the depths of the nuttiness of Darren Bailey and MAGA. And every day I see it, Monroe, I realize what a threat this is. Every day I see MAGA behave the way they do. Every time I see them say something really ridiculous, like this dude, Blake, you didn't see this? Oh, I did tell you about this one in a row. The Blake uh, Masters dude, who's the senator candidate uh, in uh, Arizona. He's MAGA's man in Arizona. He just, uh, what did he, there's a story in the paper. uh, Black people are to blame for gun violence. (laughs) Blame it on black people. They're either going to blame it on black people or they're going to blame it on Jewish people. One or the other, and sometimes both. Take it away, Monroe. I'm just like ready to have my head explode. Well, you don't know this, but we have, we black people, have um, eight conveniently hidden gun manufacturing plants throughout America. (laughs) And we specialize in AR-15s. That's that's we produce more of those than anything. So he's absolutely right. I mean, if we were making all those guns for people to kill people with, then we wouldn't have that problem. All right. Uh, so we that's just, we'd just be making knives instead. That is obviously satire. But on the other hand, I'm hoping that MAGA will use that excerpt to support Blake Masters and put, promote that. And thus, my show will grow. Come on, MAGA, use that quote. Just take it. Take that little quote. They think it, but they don't say it, most of them. I mean, of what they do. Wait, time out. You think MAGA believes that black people own uh, munitions? No, not that own guns. No, that black people are responsible for killing. Because what they do, I don't fight with right-wingers anymore on Facebook because they got to be too stupid, and I couldn't stand it anymore. But when I was fighting with them, one of the things they would use is the the shootings in the city. That would be their example mm. of why black lives didn't matter. It's because we were killing each other up. And my response would be, oh, I didn't realize you care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which we shut them up because they didn't care, obviously. Obviously, they don't care. I remember uh, when Father Flager and Jesse Jackson did the march. Uh, they closed down the Dan Ryan. Remember that? And, and I think it was the summer of 2018 uh, to just draw attention to the crime in black neighborhoods and force the world to, like, I don't know, recognize it, do something about it as opposed to ignoring it. And just walking away. Remember how angry MAGA was at them? They're shutting down the Dan Ryan, you know, and, and 
So then when, when the rioting happened after George Floyd was murdered, then they started saying, oh, you don't care about black people killing black people uh, on the south side of Chicago. You only care about what? Police killing black people. I me, mean, MAGA is so twisted, Monroe. Do you right. follow what I'm saying? Oh, no, no. I've fought with him about that. Uh, my response to that back then was the difference is that my tax dollars pay police salaries. Hmm. And I don't like the idea of paying somebody to kill me and my kind. <laughs> Yeah, I that's it. I mean, I know you've made that argument many times. Uh, that's an important argument, but I just, I, you would think it wouldn't have to bring in the tax dollars. You get what I'm saying? I was, I understand the tax dollar argument. I truly do. And I remember Tony Preckwinkle, uh, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle, making the tax. She would say uh, to me and McDumkey way, way back, whoa, oh my goodness. It was just like a. F- I hope it was a fireworks or not a gunshot, but there was a loud noise outside my house. Anyway, um, Maybe she was like thunder. Wow, it didn't sound like thunder. Oh. Uh, but uh, neither here nor there. Uh, and we're still operating, so uh, let's just continue. Um, but she would say uh, that she was trying to get the public ready uh, for the notion of legalizing reefer. And the first step uh, would to be to decriminalize. It was like baby steps to legalizing reefer, which I thought was absurd because everybody I know had either smoked it or uh, was uh, smoking it at the moment. Uh, and uh, so she said, and what I could do is say uh, the, the winning argument that I will present is that it'll cost taxpayers less to prosecute. And I'm like, wow, that's the argument we got to make <laughs> to get uh, a law change so that we're not arresting black people for the quote unquote crime that white people do every day, Monroe. Yes. Wow. That's well, the, the, the MAGA people think that we ought to be either in jail or dead. Yeah. And they don't care which one. Well, all right. Uh, let's uh, move on from this and talk Kansas. A little uh, some positive news that blew me away uh, last night, uh, where uh, we had, had just had a, uh, a great show at the Hideout. Uh, shout out to our guests uh, Terry uh, Cosgrove and uh, Megan JFO, and of course my partner in crime, Maya um, Duke Masavan. We're going to uh, drop that show in about a week. But anyway, it just created dis- uh, a discussion about abortion rights, uh, need to stand up for them, and it's it kind of in some ways depressing for me, Monroe, because uh, MAGA is just on the attack on this issue from one state to another. Uh, and then I uh, clicked on my phone afterwards just to catch up on the news, and I was stunned like with 70% of the vote in over 60% of Kansas voters had voted uh, to retain abortion rights in their state to defeat a referendum that would have allowed uh, MAGA in Kansas to eradicate abortion rights in, in Kansas. And they, and uh, they have abortion is legal in that state uh, up until I think uh, I want to say uh, 19 months uh, pregnancy, uh, 19 months in my past, 19 yeah. weeks, <laughs> got my math off there. Um, and, uh, so I was, I was really, I was just, I was just stunned. That's all I can say. And I just started texting everybody. I knew, like, are you watching this? Uh, and so I'm just going to state the obvious Monroe, the support for abortion rights in this country is clearly 
a lot deeper than anyone uh, realized. Uh, yeah, because there, the, the, it's been up for votes in various states in past years and narrowly lost uh, with pe- people wanting um, 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 life, <laughs> life, quotation marks. Uh, but the difference between then and now is before it was a theory. And now it's a reality. And it's like, oh, my God, they want to keep us barefoot and pregnant. Yeah, it's a reality. You're absolutely correct. Uh, and uh, so what, what's your just general sense of the impact? Is it going to be uh, it's going to be on the ballot, I believe, in like f- at least five other states. I'm doing this off the top of my head. Uh, California, uh, I think Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan. Just doing this off the top of my head. There'd be similar. Yeah. It ought, it ought to be uh, uh, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Literally, I mean, if the Democrats ought to just make this their thing. Just say, okay, um, we're we're at, we're we're for a woman's right to choose. Uh, what do you think about this? Um, Put it on. Put it. Put it a referendum on all the ballots, everywhere. That that way, um, the Dems will keep the House and 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 the Senate. What? The House? Monroe. The House. The House. The House. The House. The House is on fire. (laughs) Monroe, you've been smoking some of that reefer that's now legal in the state of Illinois. There's no way the Dems are going to take the House with the gerrymandering going on. Defend uh, defend your position, go. Yeah, no, no, no. If if it's on the ballot, gerrymandering um, be damned, there will be many more young women who will show up to vote. And they in in Kansas they had rec, a record voting they, um, there mm-hmm. they 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 for a midterm it was comparable to a presidential election how many people showed up to vote and you saw the results no this is this is the the game changer that the Democrats needed now if you remember in two thousand and one midterm. 2001, okay. 2001. Not 2001. There were no midterms in 2001, but whatever. I mean, no, Go ahead. No, 2000, wait, wait, wait. I'm, trying, I'm trying to. And, 2010, whatever. Just uh, finish. 9 11. Oh, well, 9 11 happened in 2001, but the midterms would have been 2002. Right. Yeah, but, well, okay. 2001, you had the um, um, Twin Towers. Yes. 9 11. Yeah. Bush was in trouble. He was all set to follow historical tradition and lose the midterms. Yeah, I As see. a result of, of 9-11, he, the Republicans did not lose okay. the midterms. Uh, all right. Uh, that voice that you heard uh, momentarily interrupting us is the great Tom Brune, uh, my first editor in the city of Chicago. Yes. Yes. What an honor for Tom Broom to be. <laughs> hey, thanks for inviting me on. You know, it's, it's, you know, my first 20 years, I, I worked in Chicago as a journalist, right? Yes. 
So it's great to like have a voice in Chicago again. Well, uh, you have your voice here, and Tom Brun uh, is uh, the uh, bureau chief uh, for Newsday. We're going to have an extended conversation with him uh, about a great story that he wrote recently about uh, Chicago politics, my beloved John McDermott, who gave me my break uh, in this business, and the Chicago uh, Reporter, a publication that Tom and I work for. That's where Tom was my editor and that Monroe uh, came and spoke to. Monroe was a big shot, and he came and spoke to one of our uh, Friday luncheons. That's where I met him. Uh, and um, so we're going to have that conversation, but I just wanted to alert people that uh, I'm, I'm welcoming Tom to join us if he wants to join us on our conversation about national politics so from time to time, you may hear Tom speak up because he's actually covered Trump, uh, Monroe. So we're going to it's going to I'm, I'm going to point blank ask him for some uh, Trump anecdotes, what it's like to be a reporter covering Trump. Uh, all right, Monroe. So I, I'm with you on the significance of abortion as an issue. I saw that in re- Kansas, a conservative state right now. The last I saw the percentage f- uh, in favor of abortion rights in yesterday's referendum exceeded. Monroe exceeded the percentage that Donnie Trump got in 2020 over Joe Biden in that state. It's a red state, as you said, but apparently uh, the passion for abortion rights runs deep. And you may be correct uh, in your optimism. On this say, OK, now, yeah. Now, my caveat, of course, is that each and every Democrats make it an issue yeah. and a, a, a political issue in each and every state. And they will keep the house. Yes. And you, wow. I, I hope we're recording that one. Because, and you cannot, and I, this is me speaking, not Monroe, not Tom Brown. You cannot overestimate the capacity of Democrats to screw things up, to wimp out, to muddy their, up their message, to back away from taking a strong stand. On the other hand, as I uh, pointed out at the outset of the show, Monroe, with Darren Bailey, who's a Republican candidate, a total MAGA man for governor here in Illinois, you can't overestimate the, the reluctance of MAGA to ever say they're wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like to just dig in their heels on the extreme anti-abortion abortion attitudes that they have. Well, because they're, they're Trump cultists. Trump never says he's wrong. And so that's part of the... The, the cult to take that position. For example, before Trump, there was a rare politician that would attack people just and say nasty things about people. I mean, they would criticize it, but it would be in a gentlemanly way. Uh, with Trump just calling people all kind of names, every, every type of schoolyard name he could come up with. That's become, he has all these mini Trumps now who have that political approach to doing things. The dude in Arizona is exactly that. Blake Masters, a piece of work. Uh, I actually sent uh, Tom uh, the headline. uh, Shout out David Jackson, USA Today, uh, uh, writing that story. Apparently he didn't break that story. I gave him credit for breaking the story. I'm going to give him credit anyway. Why not? Uh, for breaking that story about Blake Masters and his uh, inane comment that somehow or other uh, black people are responsible uh, for gun deaths in this country, uh, as if black people own the, com- the companies that manufacture the weaponry uh, that is being used to kill people. Uh, a blatant attempt to deflect attention away uh, from this issue. Monroe, before uh, we uh, 
leave national politics completely. Got to talk to you about Monroe, um, about Trump's endorsements uh, yesterday, uh, and particularly in the state of Missouri, uh, where he was uh, victorious in the Senate campaign, uh, largely because he endorsed Eric. There were three Eric's on the ballot running as Republicans uh, in the state of Missouri. So it's really... <laughs> including the two front runners. So he was going to win no matter what. Right. Uh, he is slick, that Donnie Trump. So, well, and, then, and the thing is, both, well, the, the, the two top Eric's, not yeah. the, not the, the guy in the back, dragging in the back, but the two top Eric's um, were vying to um, sing his praises. Yeah. And talk about how valuable he 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 was as a president, and how yeah, of course he won the election. And so, uh, from Trump's perspective, either Eric would do. He didn't care, you know. They 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 he he can have at them as he wish with either yes. one of them, so it didn't matter. Yeah. Hey Ben, and, Ben. Yeah, go ahead. I, I got a question on national politics. Can I ask you guys? Um, wait, time out. You cover the stuff you're asking us. Go. Yeah, no, but what I'm what I'm asking is this: Does anybody in Chicago care about this big 740 billion dollar reconciliation bill that uh, the Democrats are trying to push through the Senate? Oh my God! Well, I can tell you right now, listeners of the Ben Jarofsky show care. Uh, this is an obsession. This is like an obsessive topic on our show. We talk about it uh, repeatedly. I urge everybody, I just did a segment with David Ferris. I, t- I urge you to check it out. Uh, very, uh, it, well, everybody knows how great Ferris is. Uh, so uh, you, you're, I think the larger point buried in your uh, statement uh, is true. And the larger point is that the vast majority of people uh, in the state of Illinois, in the city of Chicago, and in the country of the United States aren't paying attention to the politics that's going around them. It's only every now and then that something so provocative, something so bizarre, something so twisted, something just so unacceptable uh, pops in their face and then they pay attention. So for instance, Donald Trump's nomination in 2016, where you're suddenly bringing reality TV to the national stage and he's just a complete ass and people are like, oh my God, this is fun to watch. So they're paying attention. Tom, as a guy who's been covering Chicago politics dutifully since I met you in 1981. Think about that, Tom. I've been following Chicago politics. You had enough sense to get the hell out of town. It's like, oh, my God, I'm leaving this godforsaken hellhole. He was in the hellholes long before the Republicans made it popular. As a guy who's been covering politics in the city of Chicago, I can tell you that 90% of the people in the city of Chicago do not know what's going on as they are being manipulated, robbed, fooled, deceived, etc. I can name, there's like 20 outstanding reporters in the city of Chicago. I don't want to start naming them, Tom, because I'm going to leave someone off the list and I'll feel bad, who have been doing exemplary work for years. And yet, the politicians who run this city get away with the same old... Crimes and misdemeanors. And it's because, my humble opinion, most people aren't paying attention. Go, Tom Brew. Okay, so so the, the reason I ask, right, uh-huh. is that we see all these polls that say, you know, young Democrats particularly, but a lot of Democrats are so disappointed in Biden. They're so disappointed in the, the you know, Republic, I mean, Democratic Congress for not doing anything. 
And now they're racking up all these victories, right? You know, they, they got that big chips bill through, you know, they got the, the, the veterans uh, burn pit bill through. They're about to get this big thing through that's going to like, you know, result in, in, you know, lower price drugs fund on like, I think 20 drugs that Medicare uses the most and th- things like that. Is that going to make any difference? Let's turn it over to Monroe, Tom. This is one of his favorite themes. Okay. Every Wednesday, he will pines on this one. And uh, I agree with like pretty much everything he says. Monroe. It will, it will make a difference if the Democrats message with discipline. But as, as a general rule, their politics is like herding cats. They're doing this and they're doing that. And one's going this way and one's going, and one's criticizing the other. If they mirror the Republicans' approach to politics where they talk about abortion, they talk about how crazy the Republicans are, they don't talk about Biden only got this much and we wanted that much, or um, this Democrat is doing that and they'd rather he or she be doing that. But if they just stuck with the 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 issues that the people care about and just do the old trick of um, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, then you tell them what you told them. If you approach it that way, then yes, they can do it because they, it's been a very, Biden has been a very successful president, especially given all that he's been dealt. He's accomplished much more than Trump has accomplished. Um, I mean, even even if you take into account all of Trump's lies, Biden has accomplished more than Trump. But because there have been these distractions and um, you, you had the, the squabble between uh, over the infrastructure bill and whether it should be uh, these many zeros or that many zeros, I mean, just silly stuff. Instead of just focusing on something that the average person could hear and like, um, it'd be a different story. Do you have any thoughts on that, Tom? Because I yeah, got a lot. Yeah, that, that's very interesting because you use the exact same phrase that, uh, you know, I, I knew the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and he held this little forum to have, like, you know, his prize candidates that, you know, he wanted to get reelected. And, you know, I, I sat through it and, and they kept like going off on all these different tangents and things. Right. And then afterward, I go out and talk to him. He was a congressman from from Long Island, a guy named Steve Israel. And he just looked at me and I said, what was that? And he said, you know, I told him ahead of time to stick to the message. But it's like burning cats. He used your exact same phrase. <laughs> and and you know what? The Democrats got wiped out in that cycle. I mean, I think that was like uh, the 2010 or 2014. Oh, it was 2014, I think. It was just a massacre, right? That was the big shellacking that that. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm Obama pretty sure it was 2010. And and I'm Steve Israel, by the way, uh, no longer a congressman, a novelist now, Tom Brune, a novelist. And yes, I read his novel. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, written too, you know. He, Trump in my ace. I didn't know he wrote the second one. <laughs> or maybe I read the second one. I didn't know about the first one. Um, but Tom, this is, 
you really are uh, feeding the beast in my brain when you said that, because Monroe and I have had this conversation so many times, uh, and I've had it so many times with other uh, followers of politics. To me, the most pivotal election of this century uh, was, the, I, th- I think you're alluding to the 2010 midterms, the first term of, of Barack Obama's presidency. Uh, he had just been swept in office with a huge mandate. And uh, I took, he was sworn in in 2009. And in November of 2010, there were Republican victories uh, throughout the country, uh, particularly on the local level. And this is where Democrats have traditionally fallen asleep. They don't pay attention to the local level. And the Republicans took control of the state houses in uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, throughout the Midwest, and uh, gerrymandered the hell out of the map. And Tom, yeah. we're still living with the consequences of that gerrymandered map. And that's why I, I put the challenge to Monroe. Do you really believe with these gerrymandered maps, the Republicans t- can take, uh, the Democrats can take the House? And so I think uh, you were right on when you said that, uh, that yes, the, the inability to stick to one message, the inability to concentrate on uh, the things they've done that have helped people, Obama in 2010 did not, and Monroe, I know, agrees with me on this point, did not do enough to promote the Democratic Party. Uh, and so he could have claimed Monroe back in 2010, similar successes that Joe Biden could claim. He didn't, didn't do it loud enough, not focused enough, and look what happened. So that's why I'm a little hesitant. Get Tom Bruin's thoughts on this. Tom, do you, what's your sense of it? Do you agree with Monroe that the Democrats can hold on the House uh, in this well, next election, go. Well, the you know, the conventional wisdom right now in most polls are showing that uh, they're, they're going to lose the House. I mean, they only have an eight-vote uh, mar- uh, margin of uh, majority in the House uh, after August 9th. It's, it's nine votes right now, but it'll be eight when uh, uh, a Minnesota representative gets seated, right? So, I mean, it's a very thin margin. And I kept wondering why they were, like, letting members go into the, you know, Biden administration instead of, like, you know, saving them for, you know, later. But I guess they chose not to do that. I, you know, I, I, I we, we'll see if it can be turned around. But uh, and I think a lot of people are wondering whether the abortion issue, for example, is one that will, like, spike people on. Because uh, as Nate Cohn put it in, in a story today in the New York Times when he was analyzing the Kansas situation, he says, you know, one of the main reason people go to vote is anger. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if they're happy with things, they don't go. I mean, it's fine. Yeah. But if they're angry, they show up. I mean, and that's what generally happens. That's why presidents usually lose a lot of seats in Congress in their first midterms is because you know, the opposition's angry and they don't like it and they want to vote the guys out. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Uh, Ironically, uh, yeah. everybody seems to think that the, that, the, <laughs> that the Democrats have a good chance of keeping the Senate, even though it's a 50-50 Senate. Um, I, but, you know, you look at some of the Republican Senate candidates and you begin to understand why. Yeah. Right, exactly. You, you, you have Dr. Oz for example, or you have Herschel Walker, uh, or you have J.D. Lance. This is why there is a good chance that the, the Dems will keep 
the Senate for sure. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I heard the same in 2016 about Hillary Clinton having a walk. So yeah, well, you always got to be careful. By the way, I just want to warn you guys. There's a literally Monroe. That was uh, thunder. I heard there's a raging yeah. storm outside my window. So if everything crashes down, it's because a tree ran fell across the wire. I'm remaining cool and calm. <laughs> I'm like is tree, in the middle of a storm doing the show. Is the tree uh, hanging over the the, 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 the tree is blowing? You guys, you got to literally see this tree. Is like I think it's forty five. Tom Bruins better at math than I am. I believe it's a forty five degree angle that this tree is at. Wow! Uh, in the old days, Tom would have corrected that. Ben, that's ninety degree angle. Uh, let's get the get your imagery right. <laughs> but uh, whatever, it's pretty scary. Uh, I I. I the reason why I think the Democrats uh, have a better chance, Tom, I agree with Monroe, of holding on uh, to the Senate or even increasing uh, their margin is because you cannot gerrymander a state. You can gerrymander a congressional district, but a state is a state. So right, uh, right. now what, what the Republicans will try to do is throw out votes in uh, largely black uh, communities. It's, That's it's the press uh, votes. Yeah. yeah. Well, they literally try to throw them out yeah, in the right, in the twenty twenty. Right. They get they they were moving to Wayne County in Michigan. Well, we're just going to not count those votes, which right. of course is Detroit. So uh, it's it's a battle before and after the election. Uh, before we turn to the story of Tom's great article about uh, John McDermott and reporter in Chicago politics in the sixties, uh, Monroe and Tom raised it already. I would love to get your thoughts and then Tom's thoughts uh, since he covers this stuff about. Uh, uh, the, what, the burn pit bill and the, the helping veterans bill and John Stewart championed it. We haven't talked about this yet, Monroe. Yeah. Uh, and he had the votes. They had the votes uh, to spend the money to help the veterans. Uh, and then the Republicans were hissy fit because of Manchin cutting the deal with uh, Schumer to pass uh, the uh, inflation bill, now known as the inflation bill. Uh, and they pulled their votes and uh, John Stewart gave a very impassioned P.O. I don't know if either one of you saw it. Uh, I can't uh, say the word he used because I believe this is a show that will be dropping on the radio. So no swearing on today's show. Uh, but it was a very impassioned P.O. from John Stewart, and they later backed off. Uh, so, Monroe, your takeaway uh, from that whole uh, show down there from start to finish, where they had the support, they pulled the support, and then uh, they... they uh, return their support. What do you think messages uh, in that? I think it's, um, again, it's, 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 it's something that will definitely hurt Republicans because the veterans were are really invested in, 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 in getting this bill through and to have the Republicans pull it um, defe- de- de- defeated temporarily because they were having a hissy fit about um, with the Democrats actually playing politics for a change on them. Uh, that they, they alienated a lot of, of, the, the, of, of their natural base, which I don't know why the military is their natural base, but it is because they, they've been lying to them, I guess, for three or four decades. But anyway, um, they pulled the wool off the eyes of the military uh, veterans instead of uh, pulling it over their eyes. And so they, they're beginning to see how Republicans are, I think. All right, let me, before we turn it to Tom, I just have to make one correction or uh, take exception to something you said. The military vote, the veteran vote is a Republican vote. 
uh, I would draw a sharp distinction. White veterans, uh, one of the things that's opened my mind, and whenever I talk to a black veteran, I would say nine out of ten are against Trump. Uh, I know one guy in the oh, yeah, 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 yeah. South side of Chicago claims he's a Trump guy. I still don't believe it, but he swears up and down he voted for Trump. But the, uh, my nephew is a Trump guy. Wow, that's two. My sister can't believe it. <laughs> Was he a veteran? Is he a veteran? No, he's not a veteran. Well, he can't blame veterans for him. Uh, right, right, exactly. Right. I'm not even going to blame well, your sister for him. Me, he's one of these rare black men for, for, for Trump. And my sister, she wants me to talk to him. And he, you know, and my, 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 my attitude is he's 52 years old. If he'd been snooping, you know, if he was uh, 22 years old, I'd have a conversation with him. But if he's 52 years old and that's stupid, let him be. No, that, that reminds me of uh, the, the Five Bloods, the Spike Lee movie, which we talked about when it came out. Yeah. Uh, he made Delroy Lindo be uh, the MAGA guy. And, he were, and, and Delroy Lindo was great actor by the way he didn't want to wear, he, he was like do i have to wear the maga hat can i do this without wearing the maga hat and spike lee said you gotta do it wear the maga hat so he took over the team uh he wore the maga hat but that just like underscored the point that you and i are making oh yeah no and 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 with the the, the veterans i no, i was just looking at it from the the larger picture. I understand. Yeah. 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 The, uh, you know, because it's the same with cops. Um, yes, it is. Most black cops are not for Trump. Most yes. white cops are. Yes. Uh, I don't know about most, but yes, your point is very well taken. Well, most uh, white cops are. Actually, you're probably right because they elected, look who they elected here in Chicago for, ahead of the fraternal order. So your point's well taken. Uh, Tom, your thoughts on uh, the significance. Of, I'll just call it the John Stewart bill uh, because it's the public face on it, the veterans bill. Go ahead. Okay, wait, let, let me let me roll it back a little bit because this is John Stewart's second venture into Washington. All right, his first was on you know the 9/11 first responders, who by the way, by and large, are very conservative. Okay, I mean you know they're cops, they're firefighters, they're you know they're they're people who often see the ugly side of life. You know, I mean that's part of their job, right? And they tend to get kind of hard line about it. And I, and I kind of get that. But John Stewart worked with them, but that was a real huge battle. It was like a 10-year battle, right? Once they kind of broke through that, I, they literally got the band back together to do this burn pit thing. Now, the burn pit thing has been bouncing around before Congress since 2010. I mean, it's, it's been out there. And part of it was it was just like Agent Orange because it wasn't, really easy to make a direct connection between some of the ailments and, you know, the exposure. And uh, so they had to, to, to fight on it. But this moved much, much faster. I mean, I really think they broke the ice when they did the 9-11 first responders, because this time through, and plus I think of the fact that I agree with Monroe that, that there's a general sense that military tends to support the Republicans because they tend to support the gigantic defense budgets and Democrats seem to be, you know, we don't want to do that. Right. So, you know, the, the fact that he was out there, he, he became kind of the face of it. Right. Um, and he had by him, this guy named John feel who was very big in, in the, uh, uh, you know, the first responders case, because I mean, he was there. I mean, you know, he, he, he uh, created a foundation to, to help these guys. Right. So I think it was a, a really interesting breakthrough, but, but it, was, it, it truly was one of those things where 
I don't think the Republicans had any problem at all in helping veterans. And and it, it just took them that extra push after uh, Manchin and Schumer did the kind of uh, uh, interesting deal uh, and waited until, you know, they passed the chips bill to, to let it happen. So anyway, it was I, I just think it's an interesting thing. I don't know what John John Stewart's going to do next. I mean, it, it, I don't know. You know, what what group that deserves some kind of assistance next if you'll show up again or for run for office? Um, yeah, there, right, there, 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 there is rumors that he may do that. Uh, run, run for, for office. office. Yeah. Where? New York, I guess. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and he'd run for federal office. I'm trying to think. Uh, New York has two uh, Democratic senators, uh, Gillibrand and Schumer. Right. So it would have to be Schumer stepping down. I don't think uh, John Stewart would run against I, Schumer in primary. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, you know, Schumer's up for re-election, right, this year. Oh and yeah, he's already. It, and yeah. nobody knows it because nobody knows his. You know, his opponent is a guy named Joe Pinion, who nobody really knows. I mean, and he's way underfunded, and I don't. You know, I don't think the Republicans are putting a lot of effort into it, just like the Republicans didn't put a lot of efforts into the last time and the time before that. Schumer has never lost an election. Plus, he has so much money. It is just he always has ten million dollars left over <laughs> after he runs a campaign. Who does that? And, you know, this, this is a little bit of a you know, I'm scooping myself a little bit here. But I found that that he has raised more money from just in putting some of his money into short-term bonds than his opponent has raised. Wow. Damn. You know what? Uh, let's hold that one. And I'm going to bring Tom Broom back. Uh, reminding listeners, uh, he uh, covers, he knows New York politics inside out. And I've been looking for a guy. He's the bureau chief uh, for Newsday in Washington. And Tom, I've been looking for someone to talk New York politics with because I'm fascinated by it. Particularly fascinated with Chuck Schumer and the way he plays the game. Oh, I know uh, Chuck Schumer pretty well. So we're going to have to do a whole show. Uh, about Chuck Schumer and the way he plays the game. But we'll hold off on that now for the moment because I want to uh, finish the show by discussing uh, an article that Tom wrote uh, that is really uh, was dear to my heart. Uh, and I know Monroe uh, kind of feels the same way. It was about uh, my beloved Chicago reporter where I got my start back in 1981. And Tom was my editor way back then. Uh, and Monroe was sort of a media superstar uh, at the Chicago Tribune uh, back then. And he graced us with his presence uh, at a um, luncheon that John McDermott uh, sponsored. Every Friday we would have break bread. Uh, John McDermott came out of the civil rights movement uh, and it was just like a tradition. Uh, The staff would have a, we would sit and eat lunch together. It was prepared by the great Helena Appleton. May she rest in peace. uh, Who was, she was the operations manager. She kind of ran the show and she was everybody's mom at work. And I loved her dearly. Uh, And she would make the the lunch and three days out of a month, we would just talk about staff stuff or whatever. But one day out of the month, uh, John would bring in somebody from his Rolodex, which was really huge uh, to come talk to us. And, uh, if you were a uh, a black person working uh, at a major uh, outlet in Chicago, you were brought into the reporter because you were dedicated to racial issues. And there were so few Monroe uh, right. black reporters. Right. <laughs> so you guys would be like role models to the black reporters at the, re- the reporter and just like. Like our voice, the voice we had within these alien operations that seemed so foreign and distant. 
and uh, so I just always thought that John's um, mission in life, Tom Brune, uh, he was destined uh, to put together a newsletter dedicated to racial issues uh, like the Chicago reporter, because he, John came out of the civil rights movement. And then you dropped the bombshell in my little world that it may have gone a completely different without the intervention of one Richard J. Daly and Cardinal Cody. Uh, so with that as an intro, Tom, I'll allow you to take it away uh, and tell the story. Monroe, this is a pretty fascinating story uh, that Tom has about how Richard Day, J. Daly controlled absolutely freaking everything that happened in the city of Chicago uh, back in the 1960s. Take it away, Tom Brown. Right. 60s, 70s until his death. And yes. uh, uh, no, absolutely. So, uh, you know, just just a little background. I, I started looking into uh, John McDermott and how he came about setting up the Chicago Reporter because I mean I, I really think that was a genius thing to do. I mean, when you put it back in the era that it happened, right? Um, for him to have understood that data journalism was the future of journalism in a lot of ways. You look, look look at it now. I mean, every publication has like all the, the all this all these metrics and data and and information. And for him to recognize that as really kind of a non-journalist, I mean, he was an activist. Uh, I just thought it was a fascinating beginning, okay? But as I was doing my research, I went over to the Chicago Historical Society, and uh, um, I have real mixed feelings about the Chicago Historical Society because they, for two years, you could not get into any of the archives so they could build some pretty little walkway or something. It's just, it's just insane. And now I wanted to go back and dig into it again. Three and a half hours, eight researchers at a time, five days a week. What, what, what is this? This isn't an archive. This is ridiculous. Anyway, I'll set that aside. Oh, that's, I, I like that little tangent. I'm glad you went on it. Go ahead. Yeah, I really, it really, it really angers me that they put themselves out as an archive and then they don't really act as an archive. And they're, they're hiding McDermott's history that way. I mean, because I can't get there. I can't, I can't like, you know, I'm, I'm here in DC. I can't go just walk down the street and go in there. Anyway, setting that aside, I did find when I was going through, the Chicago Reporter Papers, and actually the Catholic Interracial Council Papers that he deposited with the, the Historical Society. And there was this, you know, back then, they used like this very thin paper with a carbon, and they'd type it with a typewriter, right? And, and then what you would keep is this like kind of almost hard to read carbon, right? And this carbon just jumped out at me when I went through there. Because it, it, it just it, it had such like provocative language and and I really didn't know where it was coming from when I first looked at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he wrote to his, his really good friend, a guy named Ed Holmgren, who had started in uh, uh, with uh, um, the Leadership Council for Metropolitan Open Communities, which was one of the things that the Chicago Freedom Movement created. Because after all, King came here for his crusade for open housing, right? And so this is one of the things that came out of it. But Holmgren had moved on to a national, you know, open housing group by this time in the uh, uh, late 60s, right? Um, But he wrote this and he said, uh, 
the enclosed is for your information. H-E-W and I have decided to end this business as uh, gracefully as possible. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, what is this talking about? And so that's when I went back and found out that he'd been offered this job as the first Midwest director for civil rights for the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare under the Johnson administration in 1967. So when you think about that, this is even before they passed the Fair Housing Act. It was only like a year or two after they passed both the, the uh, it was three years after the, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that outlawed discrimination, and just as importantly, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, right? And, and so this was kind of a next step in kind of sh- taking the law and putting it into action through administrative things, right? And what was his big lever as this Midwest civil rights guy? It was money for schools and, and things like that, right? Because at that time, education was part of the health education welfare, you know, which Jimmy Carter then broke up years later. Um, so it, it was a big deal. It was really a big deal. But, so, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. okay, so, so, uh, so he announces this, like so he leaks it to, you'll like this. He, he first leaks it to Irv Cupsonet at the Chicago Sun-Times, right? That's his first thing, right? He wants to be in Cup, which everybody read. It was this big gossip column. There's nothing like it that I, that's, that, right? It, I mean, that's kind of a historical thing. Back then, everybody had these gossip columnists that always did these breaking news things, right? Yes. So, uh, so he leaked it to him, and it was picked up by the, the, the Sun-Times actually wrote a story about it. The Daily Defender wrote about it. I'm not sure that the Tribune did, because um, that was the Tribune back then. Right. So, uh, sorry, Monroe. I was there for 10 years. I said, you don't have to tell me anything. Yeah. When did you join the Tribune? Uh, 74. 74. Okay. 74 to 85. There you go. So Tom, wow, Tom, that was he, quite a time to be there. Um, yeah. He came to the reporter when, when John brought Monroe to talk to us. Yeah. Monroe was very much the quote unquote troublemaker at the Tribune. Yeah, there you the go. Black troublemaker at I the like Tribune. It. Yeah. I like it. That's great. So, anyway, go on with your narrative. So, so anyway, so, so a couple of months later, okay, so this was like October of, of 1967 that he announces that he's stepping down from the Catholic Interracial Council, which, by the way, just a little background on that, the Catholic Interracial Council had been around for years, but, but McDermott really loved to be plugged into, you know, the leadership folks, right? He really wanted to be part of, like, uh, the movers and shakers, as he always liked to call them, right? And the way he got the job at the Catholic Interracial Council, he was out in, in Philadelphia, I think, and he'd done some housing inspection and, and, you know, done some things with uh, fair housing out there. Uh, Sergeant Shriver, Kennedy's brother-in-law recruited McDermott to run this. He was on the board. Right. And so he brought McDermott to Chicago. Right. And so he took this over and right away he began to elevate the profile of this Catholic interracial council. And how did he do that? He would have an annual dinner, and he'd invite some big shot to come and talk to it. 1962, who was that big shot? It was Lyndon Baines Johnson, the vice president. And he brought him to Chicago. He made Daly, Mayor Daly, the chairman of the dinner, right? See, he's 
pulling all these levers, you know, on, on uh, the, the power folks. And so, you know, it brings them there and it's a very successful thing, right? Two years later, he brings Dr. Martin Luther King and makes him the star guest, right? And King wasn't feeling well, but he still came because he felt obligated to do this, right? And he was given the first John F. Kennedy Award. So, all right, so that's kind of the background of what he was doing. Plus, he, he also marched with King in the open housing crusade and let King use his office for strategy sessions. Wow. So, and, and Helena Appleton was, was uh, uh, McDermott's uh, top assistant. Because she she told me about how how they would do this, you know that they'd come down there and and uh, you know people would throw things at their building and stuff. It, so it was it was it was a very tense moment. Um, so uh, <laughs> there's this, this okay. So 1967, he gets this offer, right? Mm-hmm. And it's by this guy named Peter Labasi, right? Who's director of civil rights for HEW. Um, and Labasi's still alive. I mean, this guy has had, got real lasting power. And uh, I actually contacted about him, and he says, oh, I can't remember the details, et cetera, et cetera, right? But he says, you know, we had a lot of problems with Chicago. Uh, so um, so I, get, I get this thing, and I'm trying to suss it out, and I talk to John McDermott, Jr., right? And John McDermott, Jr., you know, kind of agrees with me at that time that, well, yeah, you know, I think there was always a thought that Daly had blocked it, right? But then when I decided to go back and for the Chicago reporters 50th anniversary to kind of dig into it more, um, John McDermott Jr. said, you know, they finally processed my father's personal papers and there was a file in there called the HEW mess, right? That's the file folder I wanted to get. So I, and I tried to get into the Chicago historical society, but I couldn't, it was booked for the whole month practically. I mean, it was just outrageous anyway. So, but he had some materials from that. And one of them was an article in the Hyde Park Kenwood voice, which was this publication that, that actually uh, Don Rose, you know, the activist and veteran journalist was the uh, editor and publisher of, right. And there was this article written under a pseudonym that was called the McDermott crucifixion. And in this thing, uh, he goes through, and, and it's, it's written in this kind of very curious way, right? It's kind of like, you know, the word in Washington kind of like thing, right? And they talked about, and this, this HGW guy said this, and this HGW guy off the record, my, my favorite quote was, uh, uh, a top official with the HEW admits the problem rests with Chicago opposition, which is why McDermott was had backed out of the job offer, right? He did that in like February of 1968. And he said, yeah, you know, we, we backed out. And, and then you go back to his letter and he's saying, you know, it was a good fight, but you can't win them all. Someday, perhaps, this is what really drew me. Someday, perhaps, the whole story will come out. Right. You know, boy, talk about something that's going to pull, a, you know, a reporter's heart out. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> in the meantime, they've decided unwise to make charges, which, though true, can't be proven. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And then he says, I have no regrets about what I've tried to do in Chicago with the Catholic Interracial Council. If this is a price for that work, then I'm glad to pay it without bitterness. God knows many others have paid much, much more. 
right? Yeah. And then he says, well, I'll get to the other part later, right? So anyway, so so he pulls out, and this article talks about how uh, it was, uh, the word was it was Cardinal Cody was the one who lodged the objection with the patronage office uh, in the Lyndon Johnson White House. Now, mm-hmm. you remember this, I'm sure, Monroe, is that Daly and Johnson were like, really close, right? Uh, they talked all the time. You, you go to the LBJ library like I did. I tried to see if he actually talked about it, right? Because they have recordings with Daly talking to Johnson. And Johnson was a big phone guy. You know, he was the kind of guy that always wanted to talk to his people. That's yeah. kind of like Schumer, by the way. He, he always talks to his people. So, so you know, he was talking about it, and, and Daly was a big, big supporter of the Vietnam War, right? So let's put this back in the historical context. First of all, after the Chicago Crusade, right, Daly really began to sour on all the civil rights stuff, right? And then, and then uh, really turned on King when King came out against the Vietnam War. I mean, that really, really yeah. bothered him, right? Yeah. I don't know exactly what it was that McDermott did, but... In, 19, in March of 1967, Cardinal Cody cuts off the Chicago Interracial Council from the church uh, funding, right? I mean, you know, the Catholic Church would have all these groups you could fund as a good use of Catholic money, right? And the Catholic Interracial Council was on it all the way up till March of 67, and then he just pulled it out from under yeah. him. So I don't know exactly what it was, right? So... Um, and and so that that kind of kind of you know was a a signal that maybe things were not going to be so great here, right? Now Cody, when businessmen went to see him, according to this article, when Cody went there, uh, he said, "Oh no no, I would never meddle in governmental affairs." Do, do you buy that? I'm not so oh, sure. Anyway, in daily daily said, oh. <laughs> in, in the article that daily says, you know what, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not opposing them, but you know, I, I got to say, I might have chosen a more deserving uh, Democrat to take the job. So, so it's a little unclear there. Wait, come on. Yeah. Daily is quoted in, in the Don Rose article. Is, is that the article you're alluding to? That right. I'm, I'm talking about, okay. So it was Don Rose who wrote the article and yeah. he wrote right. it under a pseudonym. Okay. And, and I, and he said, I asked why, right. And he said, well, you know, McDermott <laughs> didn't want, <laughs> I should, I, I got to quote this. John thought if I had my name on it, they would assume he gave me the info, which he did. <laughs> yeah, the games reporters play, Tom, right. the games reporters play, right? right. And, and he says, but uh, yes, uh, Daly and or Cody blocked the appointment, Rose told me, but John did not want to say so publicly because he had alternative plans and did not want open warfare. Okay, so this is my theory about Labasi. Labasi said he couldn't remember the details because John had told him the same thing. I don't want this out there because it'll create this war. And, you know, it kind of seeps into you and you're just not, you know, you've made a promise you're not going to divulge something. And so you don't. Okay, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Uh, But that's my my kind of interpretation of it. So, you know, it comes down to it that apparently they did block him and and. Uh, it's such a turnabout, right? But I know, and you know from covering government, that these sort of things are not written down on paper. They're done not necessarily by the principals. They're done, you know, by aides speaking to aides in kind of the background kind of way. And and you know what I mean? It's, 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 
it's a more serpentine process so that your fingerprints can't be found on it. So, I mean, that, that is what it sounds like to me is one of those personal. We see that, we see that with Trump right now uh, in, in, in his insurrection. I mean, we, some of this stuff, I mean, he's, he's, he's not as, as um, nuanced as some other politicians have been, but, but he has all the, all, all these acolytes who do work for him all the time. I mean, you see how it happens. And 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 you're you're right, Monroe. This is and this is very interesting. And and not this, to switch it a little bit here, Ben. The the whole January sixth investigation. I I covered both impeachment trials, right? And and you know I was there for the first four of the January sixth committee hearings. And the big problem is, I mean, and he learned this early on as a developer. Remember, he's a, a housing developer, right? You want to be able to do things that your fingerprints are nowhere yeah. near it. All right. Take this, for example. So I did this. The sentence is Donald in, Trump. In, the the sentence is Donald Trump. Go ahead, Don. Right. In, in, in like 1990, Donald Trump got whacked for giving too much money through the FEC. Right. And and after that, he you know, he, he made sure that he followed the rules. And I was doing a story, I don't know, in 2010 or something about how how they were, you know, there was a lawsuit filed to lift the limits on how much individuals could give. And as a matter of fact, it happened to win, but uh, that's a different story. But so I thought that Donald Trump had once again stepped over the, the limit. And so I called his office and I get a call back from Michael Cohen, his fixer. <laughs> Cohen, oh my goodness. Bag man, <laughs> and and his fixer calls me, and and he's saying, no, 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 you got this all wrong, you got this all wrong, and we talked about it, and we went around on it, and and what he had done is he had made sure that the extra money went through Donald Trump Jr. Uh, see that Monroe? Yeah, 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 yeah. So but, anyway, so all right, so, Tom, that you are going to be a regular on this show. I wrote, I. Honestly, thought you were the editor, and nothing against editors, but I just think editors, you know, they just fix up the commas. No, you're the man. <laughs> so you're gonna be a regular on this show. So go, okay, go back to Johnny Mac. Okay, so and- so back back to okay, so um, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things is that you know, I think he thought he could have some real power there, right? Yeah. And so you know, after I talked to you about this, and and you know, first first showed you the stuff, and and uh, I began to think, you know, the the reporting I had not done was, well, who did get appointed, and yeah. what did happen with that office, right? Yeah. And I have been digging and digging and digging. I cannot find a name of anybody who was named to that position. I'm sure there was somebody there, but I cannot find it. I mm. I have looked through the plum book. You know what the plum book is, right? I mean, every four years they. They published this book with all the political spots. It may not have ever put, been put into play. That's why you can't find anyone. It may it, not. It, it, well, no, no. There was a Midwest Civil Rights Office. There absolutely but, was. And I and I went through all these studies, hoping to find names come up. And of course, studies they never like give names, right? They yeah. they always do it kind of sanitized. But what I did find out, and this what I thought was really interesting, is that. And I knew this was going to be a problem when Nixon got elected, mm-hmm. right? There was a guy named Robert Finch who became the head yeah. of it. And it was a big battle over Robert Finch because yeah. the conservatives thought he was far too liberal to have that position, right? 
and it was a big battle, and then he kind of got ousted, right? Another thing happened, I found, by researching this, is that in 1969, they took the decision on whether to withhold money for desegregation purposes for public schools out of the hands of HEW and put it in the hands of the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. And that was a significant shift. And if you look at Chicago, right, Chicago uh, back in the, in the 60s, they, they made Chicago the first pu- big public school district that they went after for desegregation. Yep. And as a matter of fact, the guy ordered that money be withheld from uh, uh, Benjamin Willis was the superintendent. And yep. he intended to use the money to build more shacks so that blacks could continue to go to overcrowded black schools and whites, you know, wouldn't have to be bothered. Right. Willis wagons. And yeah, they called them Willis wagons. And so the fed said, you know, you're not going to get the money. Well, Daly calls Johnson and like four days later, they got the money. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, there was, you know, Daly was playing a heavy hand there, but desegregation agreement between the federal government and the Chicago public schools did not happen till 1980. Yes. Think about that. 1980. Right? So throughout the entire 70s, nothing was going on. But by 1980, Chicago had lost like 25, 30% of its white population, white flight going on during the 70s, right? And the Chicago public schools, there was only about a fifth of the kids enrolled in school were white. Making it, you know... It, it just, you know, it was just a delay game. Okay. So let's go back uh, to McDermott, uh, Daly, and Cody. Here's my theory. I'll throw this out there for both of you uh, uh, to entertain. And I, I just, to do this, I have to explain. In 1966, Martin Luther King came to Chicago. Most of his movement activity had been in the South, where he's battling the most obvious uh, forms of racism, uh, like Black people got to sit on the back of a bus, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, black only bathrooms, that kind of thing. He comes to Chicago and he's dealing with Chicago racism, which is a different ball game, uh, completely. There, as Monroe would say, more nuanced uh, about racism in the city of Chicago. Except when they threw bricks at him. That wasn't so nuanced. <laughs> Sometimes they fall off the nuanced bandwagon. Uh, so, um, yeah, they did hit him in so the head with a rock. It's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah you got hit in the head with a rock. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so Martin Luther King comes to Chicago, and he's he's it's it's this game that Daly's playing with him. But Daly wasn't doesn't want to openly denounce Martin Luther King, so he has his. Uh, Acolytes denounce him uh, because Martin Luther King is the Nobel Peace Prize winner and he's widely uh, admired by liberal whites. So Daly doesn't want to just upset that boat, but he's clearly irritated uh, by Martin Luther King being in the city of Chicago and just drawing attention to the nuanced racism uh, in the city of Chicago, uh, as opposed to the Jim Crow racism in the South. John McDermott, as a civil rights leader, with a, uh, an organization that was heavily funded by the Catholic Church, stood openly with King. He stood, Monroe, that is a stand. In yeah. 1966, you're a white guy running an outfit that's paid, heavily subsidized by the Catholic Church. 
and you're standing with this troublemaker? It's not this thing now, ladies and gentlemen, where everybody praises Dr. King back then. Well, except for MAGA. But back then, they openly hated Dr. King, Tom Broon, and racist when he finally, as a strategy, led his open housing marches through Marquette. Tom, you said it. White rioters threw rocks and they hit him in the head. There you go, Chicago. Yeah, they hit he, Dr. King in the head. So he had never faced racism uh, so strong in the South as he did in yes. Chicago. That's what he so, said. Absolutely. That's what he said. So one year later, Okay, so wait, about wait, 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 wait. Okay, so th- th- there's something important to add here, okay? Oh. Daly was savvy enough to force the Chicago police to, like, form kind of a, a, a protective surroundings so there wasn't direct attacks. I mean, they had to throw rocks because they couldn't go up and hit them with their fists and sticks and stuff like that, right? So that was one thing. He knew he had to protect King. I mean... You can't protect against rocks unless you like, you know, have a shield over them, right? Yeah. And and King's credit, he got up, he, he got knocked to his knees, but he got up, his aides wanted to rush him out there, and he says, No, I'm gonna keep marching. And he kept marching, right? Okay. So uh a big event happened when he threatened to march in Cicero. Oh, now goodness. Cicero at the time yeah. made Marquette Park look mild, right? right. And and that's when they had the big summit, yeah. right? The yeah, big summit meeting up. in 67, right? In which, actually it was toward the end of 66, I think. But anyway, they had this big summit meeting to come to an agreement on what they could do to resolve the issue of open housing that uh, King was there, right? I mean, in many ways, it was just a terrible choice of issues because how, I mean, that is the most entrenched problem that exists to this day. Well, I, you know? I would argue that it was a great choice, but let's not have that conversation now. Okay. Let, All right. uh, let me just uh, uh, go back to the point I was making. Yes, there was that summit. Uh, the leaders of Chicago gathered King on one side of the table, Daly on the other, and they came up with uh, all kinds of promises on the issue of integration and open housing, anything to get a King something that he could claim as a victory and get him the hell out of town. Exactly. King wanted to leave town uh, as well. So you're absolutely correct to mention that point. I'm talking about stuff. So fast forward a year later, it's 67. HEW wants to take this liberal Catholic named John McDermott, liberal on civil rights issues, not so much on abortion issues. We won't talk about that. Uh, this liberal Catholic John McDermott and uh, give him this plum position. And right. Tom, I have no doubt in my mind that Richard J. Daly, who controls everything in the city of Chicago, including plum federal positions, let it be known one way or another to LBJ or to his minions. No way. No way. This guy who was on the king side of the table, not on my side of the table, is going to get that plum position. And I'm really curious about who got the plum position. And I'm, uh, I, I hope you continue and find it uh, out who that was, because that'll be sort of an indicative of, of how King thinks. I mean, how Johnson thinks. Uh, but there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, and Cody was with him. And when he, I forgot about him pulling the plug and funding the interracial council. That just shows you how tied the leadership of the Catholic Church was with uh, Richard J. Daly in the perpetuation of segregation. 
in the city of Chicago, Tom. They had a moment where they could do the right freaking thing and stand with Martin Luther King, and effectively they were standing with the rock throwers. And well, it's just such a go ahead, Tom. Defend it. It was more subtle than that, but yeah, but yeah, I yeah. I, 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 I agree that I agree that that he did not want to desegregate the city. He did, you know, he. I, I think he he clearly was troubled by this, but he was in a real spot, you know. Because mm-hmm. don't forget, he and he was a Democrat, and on the national level, you know, you you know, as the boss of Chicago, you can't go against what Johnson did with the Civil Rights Acts. I mean, it makes you look like an idiot, right? And and don't forget, in 1968 is when Congress passed the Open Housing Act, right? So I mean, he he could not you know, kind of visibly come out against open housing, like George George H.W. Uh, Bush did when he ran for Senate in, in Texas yeah. and lost in the 60s, right? He came out against open housing, right? But a Democrat couldn't do that. So, I mean, it, it had to be on a different kind of subtle level, and, and I certainly understand that, that Johnson well understood the position that Daley was in. Yeah. And so there, there was something going on there, right? Um, but, you know, I mean, I thought it was fascinating that Don Rose, you know, suggested that it was Cody who, who was the one who went after him. Now, remember, McDermott was also working to integrate the parochial school system, yeah, oh which must have driven Cody nuts, right? <laughs> yes. You know? and, yeah. and as a matter of fact, there's a real interesting story I came across, okay? So this, this kind of fits into it, okay? At the time, Lillian Calhoun, who, by the way, was one of the co-founding editors of The Reporter, right? John McDermott brought her in, and she was an amazing journalist. I mean, you, you knew her, right, Monroe? I'm sure oh, you Yeah, knew. for sure. You know, and I had not realized until I did some research how what an incredible, inc- just amazing journalistic career she had. You know, she was like the, the New York bureau chief for the Chicago Daily Defender, which at that time in the 60s was like one of the premier newspapers in the country, right? I mean, it, it really had wide readership, very, you know, very important. And she's like meeting Jackie Robinson and, and, and doing these stories. And some of the stories she would do later, the Chicago reporter did. Yeah. So for example, she, she, she did a, a survey of all the major universities and colleges in New York City to find out how many black professors they had. This is back in the 40s and 50s. That's you know, a reporter. So she's doing those things, right? Anyway, so she she uh, she came back to Chicago, right? And she was writing for the Defender, and she heard about McDermott's efforts to transition a Catholic school that was mostly white to an integrated school. And as Saul Alinsky always used to say, integration was when the first black moves in and the last white moves out, right? So, <laughs> so he, he was like helping do this, right? He was like working with the, yeah. the priest who ran it and everything, you know, and, and, uh, and she found out about it and wanted to do a story on it. And he said, no, 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 it'll like kill it. It'll, it'll just blow up. It'll be this big, horrible thing, right? And she says, she goes to Singstack and Singstack says, no, 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 you got to do that story, right? Yeah. And so McDermott calls up Singstack and says, oh my God, no, if you do this, it'll like blow the whole thing apart. And he said, I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I will give this story to you guys first once we've got it done. And Singstack relented, right? Yeah, he's the publisher of the Defender, John Singstack. Right, ahead. he was the publisher of the Defender. 
and and it was just fascinating because Lillian was willing to go along with it because she saw you know kind of the the problems that she would create. Um, but that was like their first, I mean, real connection. I mean, that particular story. She had done a lot of items about McDermott. She wrote this uh, column called Confetti, which was kind of the Irv Cups in it of the Daily Defender. Uh, so, just to sum it all up, because we're running out of time here. Right. Uh, John McDermott uh, could not be the head of HEW, so he turned his attention uh, to other things, which was – uh, creating with Lillian Calhoun, the Chicago reporter, uh, which was created in 1972, five years later after he had been rebuffed uh, by, in my opinion, uh, a combo of Daily right. Coach Johnson. Uh, and the reporter uh, went on to, in my opinion, this is me speaking, uh, pretty much, uh, if not invent, then really show the mainstream media how it's done. Uh, what do you call it, Tom? Data journalism, whatever they call it these days. Uh, and just, in other words, substantiate your claims with hard numbers. So how many, oh, the, the, the Ivy League says it's integrated. How many uh, professors do they actually have? That kind of thing. Right. Uh, and the legacy of great journalists that came out of the reporter. I could just go on and on, and Tom could go on, and Laura Washington, Kevin Blackstone, Sarah Carr, Mick Dumkey. I mean, the list just goes on, and Tom Brune, you know, and it all, we owe it all one way or another to Lillian Calhoun and John McDermott, and we kind of, in a weird, perverted, twisted, only in Chicago psycho way, own it, owe it to Richard J. Daly and Cardinal Cody, because if they hadn't been such royal jerks on the issue of integration and timid cowards. That's me speaking, not Tom Brune or Monroe Anderson, or I think Monroe agrees with me. If they hadn't been such royal jerks, McDermott would have gone to uh, HEW and may never have Tom Brune created the Chicago reporter. And I, I would never right. have met Monroe Anderson. <laughs> right. And, right. And exactly. Anderson wouldn't call him royal jerks. He'd call him racist. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let, me, let, let me just add something that I think was this real subtle getting back by McDermott. Yeah. At both Daly and Cody. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a subtle, quiet thing, right? But while Daly was still alive, McDermott negotiated this this grant with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law to take a look at Chicago's municipal services. What was Daly proudest, proudest of? The city that works. That was his big motto. You know, the trains will run on time. The city that works, right? And so McDermott decided, we'll take a look to see just how well it works for everybody, yeah. not just the white wards, right? And, and that series produced these unbelievable findings on fires, ambulances that was one of my favorite the ambulance one where they had telemetry which is a way of like connecting with the the uh, 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 emergency room before you get the person there so you do the right things to keep them alive going there well it was only in the white areas that they had telemetry the, the the black and latino areas didn't it was unbelievable right and then you know the my the park district story i did i mean and and then the uh even the libraries and, and the fire deaths. And, and it was just, it just like made a mockery of the city that works. Okay. Yeah. That was one thing. The second thing was when he decided to leave, McDermott. who did he choose as his successor? <laughs> Roy Larson. 
Roy Larson. And what was, you know, the thing that Roy Larson was known best for? He was a religion writer, right? But he was on the team that that revealed the Cody scandal. Yeah. You know, where, where he had, like, diverted. He was being investigated by the feds for diverting Catholic church money to... This woman friend of his yeah. who was living in, in the towers over there by the lake, right? I mean, expensive places. What a city. Right? Oh, my God, Tom. I'm coming memory. Monroe, what a freaking city. You know what I'm saying? What a freaking city we live in. Uh, all right. We've completely run out of time. Uh, right. I could go on and on and talk about this stuff uh, forever. Uh, I'll just... Uh, close by saying, Tom Brune, you were really good on the mic, and you were definitely coming back to this show, uh, particularly to do a whole uh, segment on uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, and Monroe, uh, I have to uh, run one last thing by you from a listener um, who is keeping track of all your predictions. All right. Uh, yes. And uh, and so he is chiding you. Uh, you you deserve your opportunity. See, uh uh, Tom Monroe comes on the show uh, every Wednesday and makes all kinds of predictions. Uh, and um, so I got to find this one prediction uh, to make sure I'm getting it right. Uh, he's chiding you uh, for saying, oh, you go, oh, no, it's wrong. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I take it back. He's chiding Sergio. You were on a show with Sergio. Yeah. Uh, and he said, Sergio's election claim that Biden was going to carry Utah was just as crazy as anything Monroe has said. LBJ was the last yeah. Democrat to carry Utah, and that was in 1964. Monroe, uh, anything you want to say as we head out the door about uh, to either to defend your dear friend Sergio Mims or throw him under the bus like everybody else does, or uh, uh, defend in general your prognostications uh, on this show. Go ahead. My prognostications, for the most part, have been very good. I do go out on a limb per- periodically, and when I do, I let you know that I'm yes. out on a limb. I know I'm <laughs> out on a limb, but I'm not naive about it. But uh, sometimes I'm the eternal, eternal optimist, and at other times the eternal pe- pessimist. And who knows what I'm going to be either. And as to Sergio Mims' uh, prediction uh, that. Uh, uh, you two oh, we go for Biden. Sergio <laughs> uh, uh, is a cantankerous contrarian. Okay, we'll leave it there. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for having me on the show, Ben. Appreciate it. Uh, it was my pleasure, Tom. You did a great job, and uh, I will be writing about this for uh, the reporter. I'm going to do a column on it, and Tom's going to do more investigation and like work on this. Uh, it's really compelling. That I say this just because I have a personal interest. Uh, McDermott gave me my start, as I said, uh, but it's this important chapter in Chicago history and uh, how Daly dealt with race how we try to manage it and finesse it or uh, to use the word of the day, nuance it, if such a word exists in that capacity. Uh, and he was always dancing that dance uh, pretty much until the day he died. Uh, and bizarrely, uh, his one dance he did in 67 led to the birth of a great journalistic uh, enterprise, the Chicago Reporter. So uh, love the story, Tom. Thanks for doing it. And thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thank you. All right. I also want to thank Monroe Anderson every Wednesday here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, and I want to thank uh, 
uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Tom and Monroe will tell you back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D. And the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. Peace and love, everybody.